Okay, I missed what Kurt said in orientation. I wanted to say this, but y'all have got to be more alive than the 9 o'clock service. Okay? I mean, after the 9 o'clock service, I was thinking, maybe we should just cancel 9 o'clock service for the summer because nobody was awake. I mean, seriously. Y'all are awake, though. See, you're already laughing more than the entire first service. And Kurt was really funny, too. And he got nothing. So, I'm just going to get this out of the way. Uh, a kitchen cabinet hit my forehead. Since I've been asked a hundred times what's on your forehead, I don't know. I hit my head so much. I'm not kidding. I hit my head so much that I forgot there's something in the front of my forehead. People say, what happened to your head? Oh, that one. That's the kitchen cabinet. That's the ceiling fan. That's the pavement. Yeah. I think it's because, you know, like how ants have antenna. I, without hair, there's no antenna. And so I think your, my head gets close to the thing and there's no warning light. And so it just hits. I, seriously, I'm not... Otherwise, the other option is that I'm really, really clumsy. Yeah, it's the first. Okay. Today we're doing what is the third element of how we have defined the missional church, who we, who we feel like we're called to be. A, a missional church, a church that rises, looks at its city and says, who are we supposed to be for the city and how do we live out our mission in a holistic way? And, and we've talked about engaging the culture and we've talked about serving our city and today we talk about pursuing normal people. And, and, and we're going to approach that in a, a number of different ways, but in some of what I want to do is de- demystify this whole concept. When I say pursue normal people, it means engage people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ in hopes that they will. And there's all sorts of questions in that. How do you do that and why do you do that and what does it actually look like? We use Simon's video today. Simon's an integral part of our community. He leads one of our uh, ministry teams, um, and we use that video of his baptism from a couple of years ago because there's some interesting elements. And early on in the in the video, one of the things Simon says is he's wrestling with all sorts of issues and you know wondering about this this sort of need in his life. And then almost seamlessly, just said, and then a, f- a friend of mine was at warehouse, and so they invited me to come. I mean, there was no big no big intro into that. And at the end of it, he says, I don't mean to be cliche or like having an advertisement for Warehouse, but were it not for the people at Warehouse, I don't think I'd be here today. And where he was, this is a place of acknowledging his faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized and entering relationship with God forever. And I take it less than his advertisement for Warehouse and more as an advertisement for the power of individual connection of one person with another. The first time I heard anybody speak about Jesus Christ and pursue me in the hopes that I would become a Christian was when I was 12 years old and playing ping pong. Not the most obvious place, perhaps, for this sort of dialogue, but I'm playing ping pong with my oldest brother, Mike. And, and I can't remember much about the conversation. I, I remember thinking he was off his rocker because he was talking to me about this relationship with God and I was like what are you talking about and there was nothing in that conversation that was threshold you know there's it wasn't like the next day I fell to my knees and you know light crashed through and it was just the beginning it was the beginning of a process that led me to five years later become a Christian that led me some number of years later to choose to go into ministry. It was just the beginning of the process. And the process began because my oldest brother 
in a setting as innocuous as a ping pong game with his little brother, chose to engage me, to pursue my heart in hopes that I would become a Christian. And see, the question to ask in a pluralistic society is, why would someone do that? Why, why would my brother take a... I mean, I can say, Mike, we're just playing ping pong. You know, how about lightening up on the whole Jesus thing? Why, why would somebody take just a, a normal everyday event and turn it into evangelism? You know, the scary E word where he's going to talk to me about having a relationship with God. Why would someone do that? In a pluralistic society, that sounds anywhere between just silly and and flat-out wrong. Now, we're okay with this. We'd be okay if Simon's friends said to them, Simon, you got sounds like you got a little bit of need there. You're wondering. Here's an array of options. You know, here's, here's a, there's no right way. Just here, here, pick, pick some different things that you can worship. You know, and here's some different options. I got some brochures on them and pick one. You know, sort of like when you go to the grocery store. There's, there's so many options. I can only buy bread now by knowing the color of the wrapper because otherwise, I mean, there's like 50, there's light wheat, there's whole wheat, there's partial wheat. There, you know, there's all this sort of stuff. And that's sort of how we want our religion too. Can, could I have the light, spiritual, heavy, sir, you know, that we're okay with that. Give me some options. If my brother had said to me, you're 12 years old, you don't really care now, but someday I think you're going to want some spiritual influence in your life. And there's all sorts of things to consider. But him to look at me and say, Bruce, I became a Christian and I'd like to talk to you about you becoming a Christian. It seems sort of like, well, yeah, it's just, I mean, why would we do that? That's what I want to talk about today. And in so doing, we will take a, I don't want to use the word rambling. We will take a adventure <laughs> through one chapter of the book of Acts where we watch a guy who was loitering, really. He was loitering. He was loitering in Athens with nothing to do. And suddenly he begins to engage some people and talk to them about having a relationship with Jesus. And in that, we will get to the heart of why. Why anybody would do that. In the process I'm absolutely positive what will happen is that whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, you will find something that's striking to you about where your soul is and how we live our lives. Because we've meshed today pursuing normal people and the concept of idolatry. Fun, huh? Okay, we're going to look at Acts 17. And I am not kidding. Okay, the book of Acts is the, is the, it's really the history of the early church. Jesus beams off the planet and then... A guy named Luke writes the story of the early church. And in this section, I, I wasn't kidding, Paul is loitering in Athens. He wanted to go somewhere else, and he couldn't. His friends took off, and he's waiting. He's just waiting. And this is what it says. While Paul was waiting, see? While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as those in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. It's a very simple thing. He says, while Paul was waiting, doing nothing, he was distressed because the city was full of idols. So. And so he engages in conversation, day after day. And so he ends up in the Areopagus, which is this, this... 
this, uh, you know, uh, um, amphitheater sort of place in Athens where people would come in speech, deliver speeches. And so he ends up seeing some people come into a relationship with Jesus because while loitering in Athens, he saw a city full of idols and it caused him distress. And so he acted. Why was he distressed that the city was full of idols? What's the big deal? Here is the cliff notes to your message today. Paul was distressed because idols are anything that takes the place of God in our life and they will always dominate your life. And so Paul looked out and he saw a city full of idols and his heart broke realizing, I look now at a city where people are not free. Where they, their lives, their choices their security, their happiness is determined by something which will always let them down and leave them hollow. You see, all idol- idolatry is a huge theme in the Bible. And all it is, is this is, the, this is the heart of the Bible. The Bible says that God created us for himself. And we have a tendency to put other things in the place of God and allow them to be the source and determiner of whether or not and how we will be happy. Romance, success, money, sex, fame, fortune, you name it. We grab onto something, and for us, it becomes how we will be happy. It goes like this. If this happens, then I'll be happy. Uh, somebody talked to me between services about struggles with body image and how the, one of the dominant idols of our culture, particularly for women, sometimes for men, is body image. And it goes something like this. If I can lose 10 pounds, then I'll be happy. I'm not happy now. I can't be happy because I'm 10 pounds overweight. But if I can lose 10 pounds, then I'll be happy. If you are struggling financially and security becomes your idol, then if I can be assured that my job is going to last for more than the next three weeks, if I can be sure that I'm going to get a paycheck, if I can be sure that the economy is going to turn, when the recession ends, then I can be happy. I just need to hang on till then. But when the recession ends, then I can be happy again. The question idolatry raises is, what is it that causes me to delay my happiness? What must happen for me to be happy? What is the if-then for you and for every human on the planet? If my kids can just get their grades up and get into a good college, then I'm going to be happy. If my kids can keep their grades where they're at, then they'll go into a good college and then they'll be happy. If they get into a good college, if they can get good grades there and then get a good job. If they get a good job, if they can keep that good job, if they get a good job and keep that good job, if they can just have a good family, if they can meet the right person, if that right person never leaves them, if they have a harmonious marriage, if their kids grow up well, when their kids grow up well, if their kids can get good grades and get into a good college.
if I can just keep this relationship working, if I can just tonight forget about my misery, if they can make me enough alcohol to forget what my life is like, then I can be happy. If that guy will take me home tonight and sleep with me, then I can be happy. If he doesn't leave before the alarm clock goes off in the morning, (laughs) then I can be happy. If people would respect me, then I can be happy. If I can just get that book published, then I can be happy. If, then. You already know what the problem with that, don't you? There's always another if, then. If the recession ends, if only it will stay ended. There's always another then. Paul is distressed because the city is full of idols. God is distressed when we don't have him at the center of our lives because every other God will eat you alive. Every other God will sap your peace. Every other God, every other thing we put first in our life will give us some set of conditions by which we can experience peace and happiness. But there's always another condition. What is it in your life that is delaying your ability to be happy? What has to happen for you to know peace? What has to be maintained for you to know peace? That is the idol. Or idols. And so Paul doesn't say, well, these Athenians are a bunch of heathens and I hate the way they act. Paul was distressed because they had an immoral lifestyle. Nope, doesn't say that. Paul was distressed because he saw that other things had taken the place of God and that would tear people apart. He was distressed because people made for God experience misery until they're connected with God. Now, I, I, I know. I, you, know I, you never, ever, ever. Here's a public speaking tip. Never say to a crowd, I know what you're thinking. You know why? You got no idea what they're thinking. So, you might be thinking this. I'm definitely thinking this. We tend to think, well, let's say, let's say you're someone who doesn't, doesn't believe in Jesus, okay? Somebody in the room. And I say to you, you'll experience misery. You're going, what are you talking about? I'm arguably happier than you are. That's, that's possible, actually. Which, of course, is, is my issue. Which I'll get back to. But one of the reasons why we don't Engage, we might say, okay, theoretically, I get it. Idolatry, you know, if you put anything else in the place of God, it, it has ramifications for your soul and not good ones. I get it. But how do I talk to somebody else when the truth is I'm still dealing with it? How do I go to somebody else and talk to them about having peace in their life? I'm just going to have to pretend, right? I'm going to have to pretend that I'm not worried about my security, that I'm not worried about my success or acceptance. Right? Because if you have Jesus, then you're happy. 
Not so. But here's what I want to contrast for you and then talk about the pathway. Idolatry is the place of if-then. Christianity is the place where there are no conditions. In other words, here's the heart of the gospel. This is the good news. The good news is that God saw us who were fashioned for him, and he saw our propensity to place other things in his place, and he saw the misery that it caused our lives. And so he determined to bring that to an end. He determined to bring the if-then to a conclusion. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross and pay for our sins. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, he offered this. He said, here's my offer, blanket, blanket offer. If you will put your faith in me, I will forgive your sins. There won't be any conditions later. God will call you his son or his daughter and won't change his mind. I will give you security with God forever. The reason why the Bible talks a lot about eternally, it's trying to end the if-then conditional thing. There's no temporalness to it. What Jesus offers is eternal life. Life in relationship with God forever can't be lost. What Christianity says is, I call you my beloved. If you believe in Jesus, all conditions are now done. God may care deeply about what you did last night, but it does not affect your condition. You know what? If my... If one of my kids does something that displeases me, they're still my child. I still love them desperately. God's love is is astronomically beyond that. What he offers is, if you will believe in the death of Jesus Christ, then what I will offer you once for all time is forgiveness and a relationship with me, period. Beloved, child of God, cannot be lost, ever. The difference, the gap between those two things is the gap between this is the reality of what God offers us, and this is what we keep wandering back into. And the course of my life as a follower of Jesus is to identify the places where I'm living here with one idol or another and ask God to smash it, to ask God to show me the if-thens in my life. What are the things that I have placed in his place that delay my peace and happiness? Because I have to have them before I can be happy. As God shows me then, he crashes my idols. And just a little bit more, I'm living in the reality of a life without conditions, of a love without limits. And so... If I pursue somebody to talk to them about that, I don't say, I used to struggle with putting other things in place of God in my life, but now I never do. Because, one, it's a lie. Two, it's not about me. We've had this crazy notion. I can't really talk to somebody else until I have my life perfect. If you are going to wait to talk to somebody else about God until your life is perfect, we're going to close up shop because it's just not happening. 
what I feel like I can talk about to anybody with credibility and with true heart is the fact that I know that God loves every soul, that they matter to him, that he made them for himself, and that he, Paul's distress is a little d compared to God's distress when we are not connected with him because he knows idols eat us alive. And so I can talk to anybody about God's desire for them, that what he offers them is a life without conditions, a love without any parameters, a relationship that can't be lost for which I was made in the hope that throughout my life I will live far more in that than in that, but it'll never cease to be true. I say to you without any fear of qualification that God loves you passionately, that he offers a blanket of forgiveness for your sins and a relationship with him now. And if you simply receive it, don't work for it, because if you work for it, you can't work enough, and then you're going to ask, have I done enough? And you'll never have done enough. Don't work for it. You receive it. It's a gift. When you receive the gift, and that's all Jesus says when he writes, he says, repent and believe. Turn to me. Believe that I'm your Savior and your Redeemer. If you will just receive that, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. I give you his his words where I give you peace, not as the world gives. I'm going to give you peace because I'm going to show you that your life is not about if, then. We can pursue other people offering them hope because it's based on the reality of a God who loves them passionately. And it's not about my getting it right or about them getting it right. And so Paul wades into this. He's distressed. And so he just starts talking. He starts and he's no longer just waiting. He stopped loitering. And now he's engaged. And in the process of this passage, he he engages people in the synagogues and he engages in the public markets. And it doesn't even go that well. There's a bunch of them that says, what is this babbler saying? Really, read the passage. What's this babbler talking about? But he's sort of, this is what I'm talking about. And over time, they become a little more interested. And then they invite him to go speak in the Areopagus and he speaks for a bunch of them. And another of them say, I don't know what he's talking about. But some turn and find life. The if-then of idolatry ends. We live in a myth that individual actions don't matter. There's a theory in sociology called social loafing. Social loafing means a hundred people are less likely to act than one. Somebody is being attacked and there's a crowd watching, less likely will the crowd do anything because they'll assume somebody else will. We tend to live like that. Somebody else will act. My brother entered a conversation with me. 
like Simon, I don't mean to be cliche, but my eternal destiny was changed because of that. Because we're playing ping pong. And he engaged me in conversation. People's eternal destiny hangs. And our individual actions actually matter. Life is dynamic. We wade in and things change. For some reason, it's probably my age, I've begun to look at things in my life and say, what would have happened if I hadn't done that? What would have happened if at 17 I wasn't a jerk and didn't refuse to go to Dartmouth because they were going to make me take French? And that's why I did it. It was my parents were like <sighs> I don't know that it would have made my life better or worse, but it just made me wonder what would happen? What would have happened if a guy named Don Fortson hadn't called me and said, Would you be willing to sub in and speak at warehouse? What would have happened? Where would the course of my life gone? I increasingly believe that those individual actions shape life. What would have happened if my brother hadn't have pursued a normal person, his younger brother? What will happen when you are with your friends and an opportunity opens to tell them they no longer have to live with the if-then of idolatry. What will happen? Their eternal destiny may change. What will happen if you can be honest with them about your struggles, about the things that bind your heart, and the truth that you know where peace is found? What will happen? A couple of people talked to Simon five years ago. Simon is now a part of the movement connected with Christ, eager to let other people's know, people know about that. You know, I'm, at this point in my life, I would like to be as direct as possible about everything. Time's getting away from me here. <laughs> and so I would say without qualification, this is who we are. This is who Warehouse is. We are a missional church. We will engage the culture. We will seek to find ways to find our fluency as individuals and wade into a world and to, and to live in the midst of our culture where we can. We, we will do that. We will serve this city. We will see what can happen when a group of people chooses to become the righteous, tries to become the righteous, to give our life away without expecting anything in return. We will we'll do that. And we're going to see what happens in the city of Charlotte when we do that. And we're going to pursue normal people. We're going, to, we're going to engage people in conversation because if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, yes, their life may go fine, but they miss what they were made for most, which is a relationship with Christ that doesn't leave you wanting for something else in the end. I think it's better if more people engage the culture with the gospel. I do. I think it's better if more people serve the city. 
And I think it's better if more people talk to others about a real God that sends idols crashing to the ground. I think these things are better. If you do too, I encourage you to wade into the movement here. I encourage you to wade in such that every seat gets filled. I do not get any bonuses from more people being in the room. Do not get paid by the head. But it's better if people hear about a love that doesn't fade. So my challenge is to you who are part of Warehouse, as part of our community, my challenge is let's, let's go. Let's engage our culture. Let's pursue our normal friends. Let's serve our city with all that we have. And let's see what God doesn't do, how he doesn't change actual moments in lives. If you are somebody who's exploring Christianity, I'll just say this to you. When I became a Christian, this is what I knew. This, and this is the sum total of what I knew about Christianity. There was a God. That was a revelation. There was a God. He loved me. He sent Jesus Christ to die for me. And if I would believe in Jesus, he would forgive my sins and give me a relationship with him forever. That's what I knew. That's it. If that much, if you know this much to be true, then I encourage you to take that step forward and simply to say to God, God, I don't want to live my life wrapped around this. If this happens, that happens. I'm tired of delaying peace. I believe that Jesus died for me. And I want a relationship with you that doesn't end. If you're ready to do that today, then make that decision in your heart and come share communion with us today. If you're still exploring and wondering, keep up the search. I'm, I'm encouraging you to take the effort to pull that idol forward and stare at it. Figure out that good thing, because all idols are good things that become far too important. Pull out that good thing and look at it. And ask yourself, as Kurt talked about before, do you really want your life to be bound and determined by that? Let nothing be your master. But God be the God of your life. There's the place of power and of peace and of beauty for our souls. Let's pray. It is so easy for us, Father, to be mastered by things. I think there's a lot of reason, probably because a lot of things are actually good. You know, it's nice to want to look better. It's nice to want your kids to do well, and those things tend to hold us, and they become too important. They become the things that hold us captive. I pray for each one of us, she would show us a better way a way that's founded, stabilized, and centered in the simple truth that you died to give us a relationship with you, that we do nothing to earn or make ourselves right with you, but we receive forgiveness, that that forgiveness gives us life and life forever. 
Would you help us to put to death the things that bind us? Because it was for freedom that you set us free. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper communion today, and that's it's a really good picture of what we're talking about today. I think, well, I'm pretty sure that Jesus knew what we struggled with. And so at the end of his, his life, he does some really simple things in order to try to cement truth home that you want to remember. And it's like he's looking at his disciples and through them at us, and he goes, okay, remember this, okay? See the bread? Break. I'm going to die, okay? I'm going to die really soon. <laughs> My body's going to be broken, but it's not going to be a tragedy. It's broken for you, okay? Then he picks up, they're still bewildered. Then he picks up a cup of wine and he says, see this cup? This is the new covenant in my blood to shed for the forgiveness of sins. Words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. My blood will literally be shed. But as my blood is shed, it's shed to forgive your sins. And so he says, now what I want you to do when you, when you gather together, I want you to do this. Take the bread, take the wine, and I want you to remember the heart of your faith. Your faith is found in, in my acceptance of you is always going to be found in what I've done for you. Someone's like saying, got it? Don't, don't get trapped up into thinking you can earn your relationship with me. It'll tear your soul apart. Remember, I died to forgive you. Receive it and live in the fullness of that gift.